This morning we are returning to the sermon series in the book of the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit, otherwise known as the book of Acts. I invite you to turn in your Bible or to one, in one of the few Bibles to chapter 13 for the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word which we will begin at verse 13. We're picking up where Pastor Jonathan left off two weeks ago. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of love and a God of truth, that your word is truth and that your word is love to us in Jesus Christ. And so grant us the grace of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural working of your Spirit, to open up our ears, open up our hearts, and open up our eyes to the wonders of your grace through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Please give your full attention to the reading of God's holy word, Acts 13, beginning at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, that is, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believe and by him, everyone who believes is freed, literally justified from everything from which you could not be freed, literally justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now unto him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, power, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we make our way through this passage, I want you to know that our ultimate focus, the main point to which we are heading, is found in verses 38 39. The Apostle Paul proclaimed, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes, is freed, literally justified, from everything from which you could not be freed, justified by the law of Moses. So the big, big idea, the main point here, is justification by faith alone in Christ alone apart from works of the law. So hold that thought, that's where we're going as we go through this passage, and then we'll make some application for ourselves. Two weeks ago, 
Pastor Jonathan preached the opening passage from chapter 13, and that passage tells us about the beginning of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Barnabas and Paul sailed from the coast of Syria to the island of Cyprus. That's where we were two weeks ago. And today's passage begins by telling us that Paul and his companions set sail from Pathos on the island of Cyprus and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, if it makes you feel any better, I don't know a lot about geography. So I had to look at the map in the back of my Reformation study Bible. Barnabas and Paul had arrived in what is on the southern coast of modern Turkey. And they went from Perth on the coast, northward up, a very dangerous journey, by the way, to Antioch in Pisidia. But verse 13 tells us that John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, there was some controversy involved in that separation, but we'll cover that later, not today. First century Antioch in Pisidia was the Roman capital city of the Galatia province. Now, just hang in here with me. You know that Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians. Well, Galatia was not a city like, for example, Ephesus, but rather Galatia is a province of the, was a province of the Roman Empire. So here in Acts 13, Paul visits the capital of the province of Galatia, and then later he will write his letter to the Galatians. Now stay with me because we're getting closer to the point. You might remember that the major theme, major doctrine of the letter to the Galatians is justification by faith alone in Christ alone apart from works of the law. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. 3.11, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. So I want you to see there's a connection between what happens here in this passage, Acts 13, in Antioch, in Pisidia, where we are now with Paul and Barnabas, and Paul's letter to the Galatians and specifically to the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ apart from works of the law, which, don't forget, is the ultimate focus and destination of this sermon today. Now, let me try to simplify that. The passage in Acts 13 that we just read gives you the historical backdrop, the backstory, to Paul's letter to the Galatians. All right, so here we go. Paul and Barnabas, of course, were Jews. And on the Jewish Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue in Antioch for worship. After the reading from the law and the prophets, and that means the major portion of what we would call the Old Testament, 
The rulers of the synagogue asked Paul and Barnabas if they would like to share a word of encouragement with the congregation. And Paul stood up and spoke. And what we have here in Acts 13 is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. We're familiar with his letters, of course, but in this passage, we have one of his sermons. At least what we have is a summary outline of his sermon, because otherwise this would have been a a very brief sermon. (laughs) Don't get any ideas. All right, so let's look at the broad outline. It begins, it begins, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. Now, please note, Paul's sermon was ultimately about Jesus, the promised Savior of Israel. The sermon comes to its grand conclusion, as it were, by Paul proclaiming that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. But where does Paul begin? He begins with Abraham. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our Wednesday morning men's Bible study is a survey of the book of Genesis, and I have entitled it, Jesus in Genesis. And one of the main emphases of that study is that God's choosing of Abraham, God's sovereign election of Abraham, and then his sovereign election of Abraham's son Isaac, and his sovereign election of Isaac's son Jacob, was the way in which God was working out His plan of salvation down through history to bring the promised Savior, Jesus, into the world for the whole world. Now this is Paul's point. As he goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then begins to work his way forward to the coming of Jesus, to the focal point of Jesus' death, and resurrection. Now, what do we learn from this? The life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, the entire New Testament message of the gospel and the Christian faith are integrally, inseparably rooted in the Old Testament. This is one book. This one book gives us the revelation of God's work from creation through the fall, the history of Israel, to redemption in Christ, and ultimately to the restoration of all things in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes again. One book, one story, if you will. The true story. Unfortunately, Christians can be confused about this. Some Christians don't see much use for or give much attention to the Old Testament. Some Christians are so confused that they think that the Old Testament is about one God and the New Testament is about another God. What about God after He 
changed his mind or, or changed his plan. Oh, no, that's just terrible theology. That, that's the most wrong-headed view of the Bible that you could have. This is one book about one God and his one plan of salvation. And the full revelation of that plan comes to complete expression in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised coming again of Jesus Christ. But the revelation about Jesus begins in Genesis. And in fact, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Immediately after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when God announced that the woman would bear a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. And in that declaration there, Genesis 3, is the declaration that the Savior of the world would suffer death. He shall bruise your heel with a mortal venomous strike. But you, he, the Christ, the Savior, shall crush his head. You know, you remember the story of um, the two disciples who were walking the road to Emmaus on the afternoon after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They didn't know who he was. Jesus came alongside. They didn't know who he was. They were forlorn. They were discouraged. They were heartbroken. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, and, and, uh, but he had been crucified, and so their hopes were dashed. And you remember what this stranger, Jesus, said to them? Oh, foolish ones, <laughs> slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the first five books of the Bible, the historical books, all the books of the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures of the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. On that first afternoon, first Easter afternoon, Jesus taught a Bible study to those two forlorn travelers on the road to Emmaus. He taught, a, he taught a Bible survey of what we would now call what we now call the Old Testament, showing them that it was all about him. That's exactly what the apostle Paul did in his sermon in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. It's exactly the same thing. He began with the patriarchs. Then he touched on the exodus from Egypt, and he probably said more about that. He mentioned the wilderness wanderings and the conquest of the land of Canaan under Joshua. Then came the period of the judges, then the first king of Israel, Saul. But Paul's sermon, as it is recorded here, as this outline is recorded, really begins to come into sharp focus when Paul gets to King David. God had promised that one of David's descendants would rule over his kingdom forever. God promised David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13. This is known as God's covenant with David or the Davidic covenant. Now we hear echoes of it in those beautiful prophecies we read during the season of Advent. We read echoes of it in the New Testament. For example, Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Well, this is precisely Paul's point in the sermon. He's showing how all the covenant promises of God to Israel, beginning with the patriarchs and then to David, promises of a reconciled and justified relationship with God with eternal salvation in His eternal kingdom through a suffering Savior who would be raised from the dead and reign forever. This has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so he says, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And later in the sermon, Paul quotes from Psalm 2 and Psalm 16, both written by David. Psalm 2 is a prophecy of the eternal kingship of the risen Christ. Paul quotes Psalm 2, 7. God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection, written by David. And then Paul quotes Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Another prophecy of Jesus' resurrection written by King David. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost likewise made exactly the same point, quoting Psalm 16, saying that David was writing prophetically about Jesus' resurrection because, as both Paul and Peter say, David died and he was laid with his fathers and his body saw corruption. But Jesus' body did not see corruption. It was raised from the dead as the one who would reign forever. So, So Paul's sermon here in Antioch, in that province of Galatia, uh, just as as did Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, it drives home the point that Jesus was and is the promised Savior of Israel, the Messiah, the one in whom and through whom all God's covenant promises to Israel for a reconciled and justified relationship and life everlasting in the eternal promised land, in the eternal kingdom, have been fulfilled through Jesus. His resurrection from the dead was the proof that he was and is the Savior God had promised. So look again at verse 30. God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, literally the gospel. The, the literally, literally it says... We gospelize to you the gospel. We proclaim to you the gospel that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So let's make, let's make some notes of the core points of Paul's preaching of the gospel. The same core points in Peter's uh, sermons in the, in the first part of Acts. This is, this is the apostolic core of the preaching. It is the declaration, number one, of Jesus' unjust execution on the cross, his cursed death. I remind you, therefore, brothers, of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15. Number two, his burial, that he was buried. Number three, his resurrection, 
And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Number four, his appearances to followers after the resurrection, eyewitness confirmation. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Last of all to me, said Paul, and then to 500 witnesses. This is the gospel message. God has acted in history. We're here to confirm it and to proclaim the good news, the glad tidings, the gospel. The way to receive that salvation is to place your faith in Jesus Christ, which is to say, hand over your life, your death, and your eternal destiny to Him. Pledge your highest allegiance to Him. Worship and serve Him as the God who is man and the man who is God. And so the Apostle Paul proclaimed, let it be known to you that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed, justified, from everything from which you could not be freed, justified, by the law of Moses. Now we're going to dig in a little bit more. In our English Standard Version, where it says, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Greek word, as I have indicated, would be literally translated as justified. Why? Well, here's the thing. (laughs) To be justified, which is a legal term, is to be declared not guilty. To be justified is to be declared not guilty. And what that means for us as sinners is that our sins are forgiven. And in the Greek, the word forgiven is literally, could be literally translated loosed like the loosing of an animal that has been tied up. To be forgiven is to be justified, is to be set free. Set free from guilt, set free from punishment, set free from condemnation. To be justified is to be forgiven, to be set free. Free. Now that's the reason, I think, that the translators have used the word freed in our English standard version. You often hear Pastor Jonathan and I say, as the ascription of praise after the reading of Scripture. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins. He has justified us, though we are sinners. <laughs> that's the gospel. He has freed us from our sins, and it's glorious. Well, what's the substance of the point? Paul says, by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is justified, freed. Paul's point was, and is, and of course this is expounded in the letter to the Galatians and in the letter to the Romans and in the letter to the Ephesians, but but, um, in a particular way to the Galatians, is that the law of Moses, the keeping of the law of Moses, could not justify his fellow Jews, could not set them free from their sins, 
Because the fact of the matter is that in our fallen condition, no one can keep the law of God perfectly. Only Jesus has kept the law perfectly. And, and Paul makes the point, even those who demanded Jesus' execution found in him no guilt worthy of death. He was the righteous one, he was the just one, and therefore he was the perfect substitute who died for the unrighteous, the unjust. And there on the cross, the great exchange took place for all who believe in Jesus. He bore their sins and he clothed them with his righteousness. That's the gospel transaction of the cross and it's glorious. Jesus takes your sins upon himself and Jesus gives you his righteousness, his sinless perfection. That is justification received through faith. Justification by Jesus received through faith in Jesus. And every attempt to be saved otherwise is a futile failure. To the Jews, Paul's message was that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone, not by efforts to keep the law of God. The law of God is holy, just, and good. The law of God remains as the way of living a life pleasing to God. But we can never be saved by the law because none of us can keep the law perfectly. We must look to Jesus and His righteousness. At the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, Luther, Calvin, and other reformers saw this very issue, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, as the key point of the gospel, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Now, the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church ha had developed its system of salvation through the observance of its seven sacraments, and that system is still in place today. Roman Catholic theology does teach that Jesus is the Savior. Yes, indeed. Does teach that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ. Yes, it does. But not by grace alone and not by faith alone. In Roman Catholic doctrine, and this, this was the point of the Reformers, and that's why I'm referring to it. In Roman Catholic doctrine... It is grace and faith plus works, plus my cooperation, plus my observance of the sacramental system. And that system begs the question, and it was Luther's question, have I done enough? Have I done enough to justify myself before God? Have I done enough to have all my sins forgiven? Have I done enough to be assured of my salvation? And if you think that your salvation in the least little bit depends on you and what you do to deserve or to deserve to be saved or merit salvation... <laughs> 
those questions will drive you to anxious despair because there is absolutely no way to know whether you've ever done enough. And the real answer is you can't do enough. You can't do enough. In fact, you can't do anything to justify yourself before God. You can't do anything to set yourself free from your bondage to sin and death and condemnation. But let it be known to you that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses or by religious observances or by trying harder to do better or trying to do enough good to make up for your sins or by being a really nice person. None of that will take away your sins. None of that will justify you before God and put you in a right relationship with Him. None of that will set you free from guilt, death, and condemnation. And, and by the way, this is not only... A, I, I refer to the Roman Catholic theology, but, but listen, I, I've, been in some, I've been in some services of Protestant churches. Funerals. Where at least it seemed to me, at least it seemed to me, at least it, it, it sort of sounded like the fact that the deceased had been baptized assured the deceased of eternal salvation in a Protestant church. You've heard it too in the opening liturgy. The sacraments are important. The sacraments were instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ. The sacraments are to be observed and, and to be our nourishment in life. But the external administration and the external reception of the sacrament, baptism or the Lord's Supper, saves nobody. Jesus saves. And only Jesus saves. And only Jesus can and will bring you to God's eternal blessing of eternal life in the eternal promised land which he promised to the fathers in that eternal kingdom which he promised to David. Only Jesus can do that for you. And therefore, here's the warning. Because the Apostle Paul ended this sermon with a warning, verse 41, quoting the prophet Habakkuk. Beware, therefore, he said, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So the warning is, you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been told God's way of salvation. 
by His grace and mercy poured out on the cross of Jesus. You have been told how you can be justified before God, forgiven of all your sins, and be set free from sin, death, guilt, condemnation. You know who the Savior is. Don't be a scoffer. Don't be an unbeliever. Don't be that person. Believe God's promise. Believe in what God has done. Place your faith, your hope, your trust, your confidence in Jesus Christ crucified and risen for you and be assured of the forgiveness of all your sins and your eternal justification before Almighty God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for the glorious gospel of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. How great a salvation. May we treasure Jesus above all things. And may we live for your glory as his people, sinners justified by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we say together the Philippian Creed, which is based on Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and following. Christians in whom... Do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count the quality of God a thing to grasp, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven.